Are you connected to something bigger than yourself? We have to, as people, be connected to something in our life that we understand is bigger than us because we are small. I also have this, just this, there's no research or anything behind this. This is just a personal philosophy for me, like metaphorical wall that separates our conscious from our subconscious. I feel that neurodivergence is just that wall is thinner. It's a little bit more permeable and we get to tap into more of our subconscious. Welcome to the Autistic Advantage podcast, where we discuss the remarkable abilities of brains built with these unique neurological traits. I'm your host, Olivia Fox, and today's episode is part two of our discussion with Wesley Wade, founder of Forward Counseling and Consulting, licensed clinical mental health counselor, and a very neurodivergent PhD candidate. This is an example of how neurodivergent folks can connect, right? Beyond uh, borders, beyond gender, beyond race, beyond all these other things. Like we have this other thing in common, but that thing that we have in common, it it, it means a lot more than we're willing to acknowledge sometimes, right? Like that, that, that seething rage right there, right, is, is a connector, and that seething rage exists because there's things that we see that we are empathetic, that we are passionate about, that we that we are angry that other people aren't. So, uh, so something uh, else you said that um, kind of took me back to counseling was when I work with uh, clients because so like my practice, I'm kind of like in this phase of like uh, redeveloping and kind of making it a little bit more focused. So I got some really cool things planned for next year. But like essentially my practice has three parts to it. There is a mental health counseling practice. There is a community wellness piece and there is like an organizational consulting piece. The organizational consulting is around, you know, issues like neurodiversity and racism and, you know, wellness for your you know staff and stuff like this. And that kind of generates the money that keeps everything else flowing. The counseling piece makes money like because it has to, but it's not like the primary revenue generator. And so the community wellness is like I'm trying that's part of the big things that I'm trying to plan for 2024 or I am in the process of these are more things where it's going to be free resources for the community. So I'm, I'm putting that out there into the world. So I'm scaring myself saying that out loud, which means that it's good and I need to do it. But when I'm working with my mental health clients, regardless of their reasons of coming in, some of the first things that I'm looking for, there's three areas is one, um, what does your support network look like, right? And so we, I do like a diagram and I like draw a little circle in the middle, like this is you and then here's the first ring. That first mm-hmm. ring is gonna be the people closest to you, the people you have the most deep conversations with. They're pouring into you, you're pouring into them. Like these are your people, right? And then like a second ring and a third ring. I wanna see your support network. I mean, we're, we're gonna talk about that. Um, the other thing I wanna know is how much sleep are you getting on average? What does your sleep cycle look like? Like show me what this looks like. The third thing is, are you connected to something bigger than yourself? Do you see yourself as something part of something that is bigger than you? And the reason why I frame it like that, I'm a person of faith, but I have plenty of friends who are, I'm not evangelical to be clear, but I'm a person of faith. I have plenty of friends who are not, who are agnostic, who are atheists, and I have no problem with that. I'm not like one of these people. So like, I frame it like that because that doesn't have to be faith. That could be 
I believe in the 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 rage that exists between neurodivergent unity because we are not doing the things that we need. I am dedicated to ending genocide. Like it could be a lot of different things, right? But we have to, as people, be connected to something in our life that we understand is bigger than us because we are small. Like humans are small and individual humans are small, but it's cool because at the same time, an individual human can have a lot of power and can change a lot of stuff. And so it's, it's, I love the duality that exists in all places in life, but that is like a grounding piece that I have. And so I think that when we allow ourselves to explore our neurodivergent interests, our neurodivergent strengths, um, how we exist, how we operate, the different ways of working that we can come up with, there is more there um, for us that is bigger than ourselves. There are more things to be connected to. And that's a good thing. You know, having that, that, that tetheredness to, to life. And when I say life, I don't just mean human life. I mean all life, right? It's, it's important. It, 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 it gives you energy, right? Like, it, like we need that. And so um, I will say like the other piece to that is when clients have at least two of those three, with sleep being one of those two, you are pretty resilient. You typically have enough resilience to get over the majority of obstacles that you're going to experience, right? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you're going to be able to make it work. All right. There's at least four things here that I want to get back to. The first one is when you describe the concentric circles, what's fascinating is that's something that I've done my whole life to figure out what my friend circle looked like. And just automatically, I, I would just put it out on paper. One, one of the things that I realized only a couple of years ago is when I think about time, for me, it's a board game in space. And I'll zoom into different parts of the board game, depending on whatever month or day that you asked me to look at. And I just assumed that all humans think that way. And it's oh, only recently I realized, not necessarily. But the fascinating thing is when I've asked that question to a lot of people, if I say January, what do you see? Systematically, the neurodivergent people see a calendar um, or, or some form of an ellipsis of the year, the way I do, um, whereas the non-neurodivergent, and obviously this is a tiny sample size, but the non-neurodivergent people will see like an actual, in their minds, they'll see if it's January, they'll see snow or they'll see a, a, an actual physical representation, wow. whereas the neurodivergent people seem to abstract immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I definitely see a calendar. Like, yep. <laughs> like I'm always, but the, the way that you described that, like that, that just blew my mind because it made a lot of sense when you said it. And, and when you said it, I could, I'm, I'm a big board, this whole like cabinet behind me is like board games. I'm a big board game fan. And so like, I could immediately see that. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, and I'm like, I, yeah, like, it's going to be it hard. Might for me be a, to it might be a neurodivergent thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's also possible that um, I've never experienced what it's like to belong only to one country. I've always been other yeah. and a foreigner in whatever country I've been. So whenever I, I think of a particular human group, whatever it might be, I always see the earth from afar. Then I zoom into the continent, then country, then I eventually get – it happens fairly quick, but I eventually that's get to the wild. particular human group, right? But that's also one of the reasons why it's easier, I guess, um, for me to see humans as – one species, because I see them from afar. Now, let's be clear that my absolute nightmare is if the multiverse theory turns out to be correct, because then I don't just have one planet, one universe to worry about. There's a whole lot of multiverses that I got to fix. So, yeah, but you, 
but we don't got to fix it. <laughs> that's yeah, that's, that's <laughs> where we differ. We got so much work, but sorry for um, the other thing I want to pick up on. We don't have so much work, but we can't. We, the, 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 we had a, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. We, 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 had a, we had a similar line of thinking. Uh, you were talking about like your purpose, right? It's got to be for this, um, these different purposes that you had, right? Like your purpose is to limit the suffering for living things in this world. And so like the experience of black Americans, because, um, you know, every group of people has a unique experience. Um, black Americans who descend from enslaved Africans have a, a, a unique experience within human history, because as far as um, I know of, we are the only group or one of the only groups who had their culture erased, right? So like Africans who were enslaved had their culture erased. So black Americans had to rebuild their identity. We are essentially the most um, like American, most United States thing that there is because we are that. Like our language got erased, our customs got erased. Like we don't have that connection. That's why the term African-American became popular because we needed to reconnect with uh, an aspect of our identity. So identity development becomes really complex for Black Americans. Um, in order for Black Americans to survive in a country that was built um, that was built on their backs, that was built with the philosophy that we are capital, that we are livestock, mm -hmm. right? We had to understand that the change that we're fighting for is not happening in our lifetimes. We're fighting for generational mm -hmm. change. We are mm -hmm. operating with a future, with a generational mindset. And that is really what all people need to have in order to have a greater sense of humanity, in order to have a greater sense of our smallness in this big uh, scheme of things. It's also one of the reasons why people don't understand this, but like why when there's like something horrible going on and you go on Twitter, black Twitter is having fun and telling jokes. Because black folks already like our lives are not ours. Like we are like once we get us that like we are living for the future generation. So while we're here, we're gonna have a good time. Cause we cause it's already it's already bad anyway. So we just gonna have fun while we're doing it. But I, I just had to say that. That makes total sense. That does. Um the other thing I wanna come back to because it's so bloody important is sleep. So few of us realize how fundamental sleep is to not just our performance, not just our happiness, not just our health, but really our interest in life. And yeah. it's it's no it's no surprise that sleep deprivation is one of the most effective ways to kill a human being. Um, when I think I believe this is just a, a purely conjectural, but I think that neurodivergent people are particularly at risk when sleep deprived of depression of which anyone in a tough circumstances will be in when you're in a world that is not built for you, doesn't accept you. If in addition to that, your brain can't function well because it's sleep deprived, you're in a even worse situation than a neurotypical person would be, I think. Yeah. It it essentially, I 100% agree with that. Uh, essentially, all of the issues neurodivergent folks experience are issues everyone experiences to a degree, like the basic issues, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens is that our neurodivergence exacerbates those things, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have um, um, like a need to fidget or to do something to occupy their, their, their energy, right? But it becomes stemming for neurodivergent people, right? Because we, because it's exacerbated for us, right? Everyone has some sensitivity to, um, 
you know, stimulus, right? But neurodivergent people have more sensitivity. Like, so it's, that's what it is. So like the thing that you're talking about, like sleep is so important to every human, right? But because we're neurodivergent, sleep becomes harder for us in some regards. So like I, it's hard for me to accept that I have insomnia because I don't have a problem going to sleep. If I laid down right now, I could fall asleep. My issue is not the ability to fall asleep. It's allowing myself to go to bed because I get so interested in things. I get so wound up in things. I stay thinking about things. I, I, I get anxiety about all the stuff that I have to do that I energize myself and I could be up forever. But if I if I just told myself, no, you're going to go to I could have drank a cup of coffee. I could have took Adderall. I have a legal Adderall prescription <laughs> prescribed by my primary care practitioner. I could have took an Adderall. But if I decide to myself, no, you need to get sleep. I can always make myself go to sleep. So, but I had to realize insomnia looks a lot of different ways. It's not just the inability to fall asleep when you go. It's also the inability to allow yourself to just go to bed, right? It's that, that is another piece to it. There's two things I want to mention um, because I'm, I'm sometimes asked about examples by allistic, i.e. non-autistic people of what it looks like. So um, you were talking about stimming and, when I was trying to record the uh, intro for this podcast just now during our, the early part of our conversation, I was not able to get the intro right until I let myself uh, sway from side to side. And that motion, the minute I let myself what would be considered a stim, I was able to get the intro perfectly right. The other thing is um, when you're talking about stimuli, sensory stimuli, Unless I'm on stage and being paid, frankly, quite a lot of money, I'm going to wear my clothes inside out um, because most of my clothes have seams that to me are uncomfortable. And I don't see why my all day discomfort should be less important than your uh, temporary and doubtful aesthetic displeasure. You will not suffer more than a couple of seconds from seeing seams in my clothes because I've turned right. them inside out. Whereas I would be uncomfortable all day because of bloody labels or seams, et cetera. Um, now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you with regards to counseling is when, when people think of um, autistic people, they've got all sorts of misconceptions or stereotypes. Um, what are the common misconceptions or stereotypes that you encounter in your work with neurodiverse individuals? And how do you address or challenge these in the counseling setting? In the counseling session, um, it can, there's a lot of different ways, right? Because in the, I should say in the counseling setting, right? Because the session is a specific aspect of the counseling setting. Fair when point. I think about the counseling setting, I think it's really important. And this is not just for me. This is for any practitioner. The counseling setting is the initial email, the phone call, how you treat the person when they walk in, right? Like the, the like the things that aren't being said, like the counseling setting is a lot. Um, I also have to have a setting that allows me to be the best version of myself, but is also not going to cause too much interference for the wide array of, you know, sensitivities that people can have, mm. right? So, I like a lot of color. I like a lot of busyness. And sometimes, like, let's say if I'm doing virtual, because I do in-person and virtual stuff, 
um, you know, you don't want too much in your background, right? But I also like having a lot in my background, right? And so like, there's all these different ways of presenting. So I, I like, I mix things up. I'll be intentional to ask people what they need, right? So like, it's the first few sessions, you can't, it's just not enough for an intake, like like just a, a, a digital or paper intake. You really need to have that conversation with someone, um, whether they understand their neurodivergent or not, or whether they actually are. I'm going to ask that person, what do they need to listen the best? What do they need to participate the best? Because everyone, whether they have a physical disability, whether they are neurodivergent, whether they are, you know, abled and neurotypical and all these sorts of things, we all have some support needs, right? If like we really understand our strengths and weaknesses, we all have some support needs. We all have things that are strengths. We all have things that will help us to process better. And so I really challenge people. So let, let's say if I ask that and the person is like, oh, you know, I'm good. I'm not going to push them on it, right? This is like motivational interviewing. It's rolling with resistance. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool, man. It sounds like you're really flexible with stuff. That's cool, really adaptable. Um, that's kind of like a way to ask a question without asking a question. They're going to tell me a little bit. Ah, actually, you know, I'm not that adaptable. Actually, blah, blah, blah. Or actually, I am, right? So now I'm like getting some more information, but I'm not making like a like a direct confrontation or challenge because if that person is neurodivergent and doesn't realize that they are, especially if they are neurodivergent and they have an additional um, identity that experiences marginalization, we can be quick to rage in some instances, right? And I'm not saying that like we're more quick to rage in other situations and I'm not saying that it's unjust. I am a black neurodivergent man. Um, people have like this whole angry black men thing. Yeah, I am an angry black man. There's a lot to be angry about. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm incredibly angry. I am incre But I also recognize that anger and I feed it, right? And I want to be respectful to other people's sensitivity of, of areas where they have anger because I have, I do too. You know, so let so I'm gonna ask them some questions. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work on. It. I'm not gonna be too confrontational unless there needs to be, but that's after that rapport is developed. I put a lot of emphasis on the relationship because you know there's that whole like misnomer of autistic folks or neurodivergent folks, but specifically autistic folks that we're not empathetic, that we're not caring. No, we're actually like more empathetic. Right? We're actually like more caring, right? But the thing is, is Again, neurodivergence exacerbates what's there. And so a lot of the research centered, you know, like upper middle class white men, right? And so th they operate under the guise of white supremacy and patriarchy, which takes away your humanity. Like white supremacy and patriarchy hurts men too. It hurts white men. They just don't see it, right? And so it takes away a lot of their empathy and compassion and emotion. So now here you are, this neurodivergent person, and those qualities of yourself are being exacerbated, right? Those are, and, th and that's, uh, that is my personal working theory on like why a lot of folks have that understanding because the neurodivergent people I know in my life are the most sensitive, caring, mm -hmm. empathetic, mm -hmm. sharing, compassionate, understanding people that I know, <laughs> right? And like, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give space. Even when someone's not comfortable, I just got to give space. I'm going to work it in. I try to um, model a lot of this language in the counseling setting. I show things that happen to me and explain them. I have a uh, low working memory, very common for a lot of ADHD and autistic folks and neurodivergent in general. My long-term working memory is my long-term memory is fantastic. My working memory is bad. I can forget what I'm saying in mid-sentence. Happens sometimes in a counseling session. I'll bring light to that. 
Oh, I just had an episode of like bad working memory. You know, this happened. This is something that's very common for folks with like a condition like this or that. So I'll explain that just to, you know, make it known. This is what it is. This is a space where that's okay. You don't have to do that. You don't have to code switch. You don't have to mask. And so modeling to me is one of the best ways to do it. But it's not just the interaction in the session, like the setting is all of those different components, right? The the lack of empathy misconception is, I think, the most prevalent and certainly the most help, hurtful um, with autistics. Damon Milton's double empathy problem, the way he framed it, which I found absolutely brilliant, the understanding that it's not that we don't have empathy. It's allistic people, non-autistics, don't understand us and we don't understand them. The empathy goes in both directions, whereas autistic people will understand each other extremely well. And so it's not that we don't have empathy. We have a lot of empathy. It's just differently expressed. And it's a lack of understanding of what is happening in the other non-autistic person. So I see it really as a communication challenge. Um, when, When you work with clients, are there any particular success stories or breakthroughs that you can share on how things can shift or change in neurodiverse individuals' lives? I mean, there's a lot of stuff, right? So like a lot of my work has been really centered around the um, uh, the, the connection between career and mental health, right? Um I have a lot of issues with career because of the way work exists in our world, but it's still a reality and a necessity for the overwhelming majority of people in this world. And so uh, we need to figure out a way to do it healthily, right? And so helping neurodivergent folks establish a career that they didn't think that they were going to be able to do, that people told them was going to be impossible for them, that is very, um, that's one of the best feelings that um, I can have. And it's, and it's 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 my own story, right? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of us get in these fields because it's they're pieces of our own experience. And you know, like these uh, all these isms in our culture will try to tell you that's me search and that's bad. All like it's nothing bad. Like we we should be doing the things that we have a personal, a deep invested interest into. And so, um, I know for me, I felt like in my career, I was never heard. I was never listened to. Like people didn't see me. I've never been promoted in my professional career. It's one of the reasons why I had to leave, um, regardless of how well I did. It just never, nothing would just ever like happen in a way that I was hoping. Um, and it's challenging to, um, it's challenging to me. And I use that example with my clients because people don't, always understand how they're seen, right? And so when I'm working with a neurodivergent client uh, to keep in track of this story, one thing that I like to explain is the ways that people see themselves. So there's this thing called the Johari window that I really like. It's like the four quadrants. Like quadrant one is things that everyone knows about yourself and you know about yourself. Quadrant two is things only you know about yourself. Quadrant three is things only other people know about yourself, things that you don't even know. Quadrant four is stuff that no one knows about you, right? And so, like, I I go through that because there are two whole quadrants that we don't know anything about ourselves, right? And so, our perception is not always the full, is never the full reality of it. And so, my perception of, like, myself, and I, I do this with my clients, 
I've been fired from jobs. I've walked out of jobs because of angry, because I've been angry. I've uh, performed really well and never got promoted and then just left. Uh, I haven't always had the best references because I might have burned a bridge somewhere or something. And so that narrative still lives very prominently in my head. I have to remind myself, I, I'm a black man in this country. I'm getting a PhD. That's 1% of the world, right? I have two master's degrees. I have a comfortable life. Um, like I'm doing well, right? But that narrative has been established that tells me I'm not. And so again, I'm modeling that to the client and they get to see that, but then they get to believe that. And then you hear them speaking differently about themselves. And then you see them acting differently within their own actions and how they're carrying this out. That becomes amazingly satisfied right and i'm being pretty general because i don't you know like hipaa and all these i don't i want to uh hipaa's you know uh, health uh information protection act and stuff and like so i want to protect everyone's confidentiality here but that is the thing that's like the most prevalent um working specifically with uh black neurodivergent folks and um, seeing them realize, oh, I really am this thing. Oh, like a lot of people around me are. Oh, like, oh, oh my gosh, this is great. Oh, this is why that level of awareness, but it's not just awareness, it's unpacking that. It's seeing those strengths that were always there and pulling them out and then getting to implement them in your life. But you understand why. Eh, you know, this person was making me upset, but I know that's why that is. And I know that this is, I need this coping mechanism to help me. So now I'm implementing that. When, when I get to see people managing their energy, understanding that it's okay for them to prioritize their needs, right? Like that. Ooh, that's motivating. That's motivating for me. That keeps me going. I love that. Are there any particular advantages within neurodivergent in general and autistic in particular minds that you've seen emerge repeatedly and that you can encourage people to play on? Um, I, I, I think the one of the strongest patterns that I see is just the ability to see connections between things that people can't see. It might not even be between things that people think are connected. There's just this ability for us to see like it, maybe it's a progression. So pattern recognition is seems to be a really strong piece for a lot of neurodivergent folks. I also have this, just this, there's no research or anything behind this. This is just a personal philosophy for me. I feel that like, you know, this whole thing of neurodivergence, we really don't know what it is. Whatever this like, uh, like metaphorical wall that separates our conscious from our subconscious, I feel that neurodivergence is just that wall is thinner. It's a little bit more permeable and we get to tap into more of our subconscious. And if you think about it, there's a reason why that wall exists because it's a lot of information. It's overwhelming. So no wonder we have a lot of sensitivities to stimulus and dopamine and all this sort of stuff because we're diving into our subconscious. Like I, I feel like when I talk to neurodivergent folks and we have like a long conversation, all of us have had some experience at some point of our life where we're like, we did something. We're like, how did we do that? This is amazing. And it's, it blows our own minds. We, are, we, we can tap into so much a lot easier than other people can, but we have to give ourselves the space and the acceptance and the affirmation and the confidence to tap into that stuff. And I think that pattern recognition is the key to a lot of that because pattern recognition is a lot of different things. People think of like numbers and shapes and all that stuff. 
the types of patterns that I'm really good at recognizing are psychological and sociological patterns. I'm not that good at a lot of board games and card games, but I'm really good at reading people. And I have fun reading with people, uh, reading people. And when I'm able to read them and I'm playing with my friends, I also know how to manipulate the action. So I'm messing with like, and to me, that's the game behind the game, right? And so, but it's a strength and pattern recognition. I've been able to go into organizations and like when I get a firm context of what's going on, one of the issues is in order for me to get the context that I need to have these absolutely brilliant understandings of these patterns, I have to ask questions that neurotypical people find not bright. They're like, what? why are you asking that question? Hey, I need you to just be quiet and trust the process, <laughs> right? Like people think differently. The questions I ask, people make a lot of assumptions on why I'm asking. They have no idea why I'm asking the question. So I usually have to say, hey, that's not why I'm asking. Just, just work with me here, right? Just walk with me. And when I'm able to ask these questions, I can see the context. I can see the psychological patterns and associations. And I'm like, this person is probably going to do this, which is going to give them these options. And these are the only people who can pick up on that. And you also have a gap in information here and blah, blah, blah. And this is going to happen. And then they just go, that makes so much sense. <laughs> right. And like, and it, a lot of times it happens if they don't do it. And so this is part of that brilliance of us being able to tap into these things. Um, I'm just, I feel like for myself, I'm just scratching the surface. So one point on the science of this, there's, we have two modes in our head. We've got the executive mode network and the default mode network. And we have been worshiping at the shrine of the executive mode network for so long. Um, yes. We take the default mode for, for granted, but it's the interplay, the the conversation between the default mode and the executive mode from which the best ideas come from. My personal theory on this is that neurodivergent people are more aware of the conversation happening between those two modes. Sometimes I could swear that I can feel those two parts of my brain sending packets of information back and forth. It happens usually too fast um, for me to get what's being sent, but I could swear that I can feel it. The, the other thing is that we have indeed better access to our default mode network than uh, non-neurodivergent people. Yes. Uh, there's a, a theory currently that Autistic people in particular take in 60% more information than allistic people, which would explain oh, okay. why we get so easily overwhelmed and also explain yeah. why we can see patterns that other people can't because we simply see more data than other people. Yeah. Yes. Well, oh, 100. People ask me questions and I'll pause. I didn't really realize I was doing that, but I pause and I have to let them know, like, I can interpret your question in five different ways. There, there, there's probably one specific way that I think you mean it in, but I don't want to make an assumption. Can you explain to me which one of these five ways or more that you mean, right? Because I want people to understand. It's not that I don't understand you. You don't, I, I probably understand you better than you might understand yourself in some areas, but like, I, I, yeah, you don't understand how different your question can be. And so actually, at the, and, and also I just realized what time it was. I had completely lost track of time and I, I got to run, but writing for me, I love to write and I've been really hurting over the past few years because I haven't been able to write. Um, and, and there's so much writing that I want to and need to do, but a lot of reasons why I haven't been able to write depression all this other stuff, you know, pandemic, all this other, but it's long story, but writing for me at this level has been challenging because one, 
I just have become so much more aware of how little I know, which I already kind of knew, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, I know a lot, but I really don't know a lot at all. And also like, oh, I was going to write this thing about media, but I know a guy who's been researching media for like 10 years. So I, I need to spend like, you know, five weeks like reading about this. And then also like, oh gosh, that sentence, that sentence could be interpreted a bunch of different ways. I need to spend 45 minutes perfecting that sentence. And so this is when we have to take ourselves out of those loops, right? It's when that strength can become a weakness because I'm a firm believer that our greatest strengths are also our greatest weaknesses and vice versa. And so that strength can become perfectionism, which is a yeah. huge weakness, which hinders mm -hmm. a lot of neurodivergent folks. And when we can just fully accept ourselves, remove that label of perfectionism, remove that label of um, ableism and all the other isms, then we really get to flourish. Wesley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that I have not asked you or any final messages that you would like to give? I mean, there's always 50 million things, but thank you for this, Olivia. This was a great conversation. I am five minutes late for my next meeting, which I, I need to apologize to them for, but this is what happens when we have wonderful, fun, entertaining neurodivergent conversations. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was this was this was really fun. And I and I'm sorry cuz I'm going to like run and get off super quick, but this go, was go, this go, was go. great. Thank you. Wesley, thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your experience. You can learn more about Wesley Wade by following him on LinkedIn, where you can also follow Tap for new episodes. That's it from the Autistic Advantage podcast. Our team includes production director Harvey Range, audio editor Brandon Williams, Community Director, Van Van Hook, Creative Director, Kaya Williams, and I'm your host, Olivia Fox. See you next time.